And good morning. All right. Um, my kids got into Legos a couple of years ago, um, and I quick, quickly realized there are certain things that were different from the time when I used to, and some of you guys used to play with Legos, and we used to play with Legos like this, basically build things and try to smash them up against each other, and whichever one was standing would win. I quickly realized this was a very different Lego world nowadays. Nowadays, uh, as some of you guys may know, Legos are these incredibly intricate uh, miniature models of pretty much anything in life. It, can be, it, it will represent pretty much anything in life. Uh, they're that precise and that nuanced and subtle. Uh, my kids love the Star Wars Legos because, to be honest, it's, you know, Star Wars is very educational. Uh, to put together these models, first, uh, you have to have the instructions. The instructions that come with the Lego models, of course, have to be very precise, and they break down the steps into these incredible, precise, step-by-step instructions, put the round, red round peg into the fourth knob down on the gray triangular piece with the notch, right? And they have pictures, very precise pictures for every one of these. Uh, But every once in a while, as you're doing these Lego uh, building projects, you can get lost sometimes, and more often than not, I'm the one that winds up finishing these up. And so sometimes, every once in a while, I will have to do what? I will have to look at the box. I have to look at the box. I have to look at the big picture. Because the box has the picture of the finished product, of what it is supposed to look like. So you need the box, the big picture, because when you see this, it helps you on several levels. First and foremost, when I see the box, actually, it encourages me. It makes me think, oh, wow. I can have a Lego like that. And I'm really thinking the first person who will play with this Lego, Star Wars, whatever thing, will be me. So I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't that be cool to have that? I've always wanted to know what a Lego X-Wing fighter will look like, and that is going to be the finished product. Wouldn't that be cool? So the big picture encourages you, it inspires you, and it can also help orient orient your work because you realize, oh, I see the way the wings are put on. I see the picture now. So now I get what I'm doing in this broken down uh, step-by-step instruction. Now, however, if all I had was the cover and I opened up the Lego and, and easily these things could be, even for, you know, the ones that that are age-appropriate for my kids, it could easily be over 100 steps. If all I had was the big picture and I was missing the step-by-step instructions, I would scream, right? I would just go, sorry, kids, can't do it. And, and my kids you know, will sometimes look at me like, what, why, why do you, come on, you could do it, you're dad, you are dad, you can do this. I've seen you do amazing things in my life. There's no way that you could do this, no way you could finish without the steps broken down. You need both the big picture and you need both and the instructions. When it comes to authentic spiritual transformation, when it comes to thinking about your spiritual life, we need to think about it like this. We need both the big picture and the step-by-step instructions broken down. 
First, we need the big picture. We need the right big picture. We can get really confused. We can get really confused about what a Christian life, what an authentic, transformed life is supposed to look like. Living a life of faith is supposed to look like. And sometimes we find ourselves chasing after something that we realize is maybe not the right big picture to have. We can get confused. Sometimes we'll run into people who seem so um, uh, intent on speaking a certain spiritual language and we start to begin to copy how they talk and, and we'll say blessing and blessed and uh, blessful for everything that we find in life. And we, instead of saying thank you, uh, we start saying, oh, that's such a blessing. And, and we start using words like anointing and that's so anointed. And, and if you think about it, you go, what does that really mean? But we find ourselves doing this because we find somebody else that we saw, we admired doing this in life. And we wonder if that's how our lives are supposed to look like. I also know some people, we and probably all of us have met people, who talk like they're wearing some sort of like a, a spiritual Bluetooth headset with a direct connection to God. And, and I don't know if you ever had these awkward moments when you're in line at like the supermarket and, and somebody says, hey, how you doing? And, and you turn and, and you kind of say, hey, and you, you say, hey, I'm doing good. And you realize they have a Bluetooth headset on, right? But sometimes I run into people who seem to be talking to God like that. It's like, yes, Lord? And it's like, oh, we were right in the middle of a conversation, but obviously you got a phone call from God, so you have to take it. And you, it, it feels like that. It's like, Is that supposed to be my life? Am I supposed to strive for that? I'm making fun a little bit, but there is really a part of my life. There are times that... There, uh, there, there have been seasons in which I, I wondered, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? People can get nervous because you don't know what that final picture is supposed to look like. What does an authentic spiritual life look like? So we need to have the right big picture, right? This is why studying spiritual biographies of people admire, as Pastor Sam talked about, role models, is so important. This is why scriptures are full of stories of people's lives. Uh, Abraham and Joseph and, and Moses and Nehemiah, Esther and Ruth. These are some of the people that we have studied from the Old Testament. And Mary and Peter and Paul and John in the New Testament. These are some of the people. And you know what's amazing about the stories that we find, their biographies as told in scriptures, is that they're told in such human detail. None of these people are described as these super spiritual human beings that are unrelatable. They have flaws. They're petty. They need help. They make mistakes. They become role models because they are relatable and we realize, nevertheless, they get something about God that I desperately need to know as well. Their lives give you that box cover picture to inspire you and encourage you and let you, know what your, let you know when your orientation is off. But second, you also need the more detailed instructions too. You need the step-by-step instructions. You need someone um, guiding us. This is what you need. These are the things that you should be thinking about at this time. This is what you should be doing. And here are the possible pitfalls. I'm going to uh, take Max later on today, um, Esther, got uh, myself and Max a very special ticket to go see the Clippers. And I've been talking up um, 
Chris Paul, they're playing the Sixers. Um, but Chris Paul is probably going to play tonight. Um, and it's going to be really exciting and encouraging because he's starting to learn basketball to see basketball played like how it's supposed to be played. It's going to inspire him. But I can't just sit in front of a YouTube highlight video of Chris Paul and expect him to learn basketball that way, right? I need a coach. I need to help him by, by guiding him and breaking down uh, step-by-step instructions of how to shoot, how to dribble, how to play defense. And some of these will be drills that he will have to learn to do that will seem meaningless, that will seem like nothing like basketball at first. But that's how he will learn. That's how he will need to learn. This is how we all learn things. And it's like that about spiritual life. Here are the things that you need to let go of. Here are the things that you need to do to grow. Here are the, here's a prayer exercise that you can do to become more kingdom-minded in your life. So you need both the big picture and you need also the step-by-step instructions. Now, I was just making an observation as I was writing this up. I'm going, um, anybody notice any tendencies on which aspect uh, Pastor Sam might focus on versus which aspect that I might focus on? Right? You guys notice the tendencies? You guys, some of you guys are like, no. It's like, <laughs> who, who, who has a tendency to focus on the big picture? Who has a tendency to focus more on the step-by-steps? Right, okay. Wow, really? You guys don't know? I thought that was a pretty obvious one. Okay. <laughs> Sam has a tendency to focus on the big picture. I have a tendency to focus more on the step-by-step. This is just our natural tendencies. And I think, for me, that is part of the complementarity that we really appreciate about working with each other. And I think, actually, you guys do as well. Now, even if you couldn't point that out with the difference, because <laughs> I can't tell you how many times somebody will say something like, <clears throat> something like this, which is, and Pastor Sam will talk about it like this too, is that, is that you know, and it's just, this is kind of a good thing, where people will come up and say, oh, you know what, I really appreciated what you said, you know, several weeks ago, you said this, and I thought that was, you know, that really helped me, I'm thinking, that wasn't me, that was Sam. <laughs> and once in a while, somebody will go up to Sam and say, you know, um, that really touched me, and I, it really helped me reflect deeply. And Sam said a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about something, he said, you know, and for whatever reason, I didn't tell them it wasn't me, it was you. I, I was just quoting you. Um, but, you know, uh, I think that blurring is good. I think because in one sense, we're not here to, you know, we don't want you to focus on who said what in one sense. Rather, than, rather we, uh, we would want you to focus on the message. Now, I say all this in part because I I want everyone to think soberly in general about their spiritual life. But I also say this in the introduction to our text, Psalm 63, which uh, is this beautiful, beautiful psalm that gives us this one very important big picture, I think. This one critical picture of authentic spiritual life. And a set, and then also in this picture in this psalm are given a set of implied instructions on how to get there. Um, And here is the one picture that I want to highlight right now, and it is this. The way that you know that you have found God is that you begin to develop a spiritual appetite for him. Very simple thing. You've heard it over and over But it says it in this powerful uh, psalm here. The way in which you know 
that you have found God is that you begin to develop a spiritual appetite for him. Listen again to this psalm because it's all about longing and desire and, and, and thirst and hunger. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. So how do you know your spiritual life is for real? Well, David, who is the writer of Psalm 63 Let's us know that you begin to really, really long for God. The way you know that you have found God is that you have this spiritual appetite for God. And I say this in one part because even though we have repeated it so many times over, we have a tendency to think the way in which we find God is because we have a spiritual appetite already. And that leads us to God. And that's not what this says. Let's break the psalm down a little bit. Listen to how the psalm begins. It begins with this simple confession. It's so simple sometimes that we miss it. It says that God is my God. What does it mean when it says, you God are my God? And why would he start out something like that? It used to say in the old NIV, it used to say, oh God, you are my God. And um, there was this famous Rich Mullins song that we, some of us grew up with. And, and I think about that every time. I love that song. Oh, God, you are my God. You, God, are my God. And what is the emphasis? I will tell you the emphasis right now. The emphasis is actually the word my. Why else would he say it like this? You, God, are my God. To call God my God is David's declaration of this incredible covenant relationship between him and God. It's a statement of deep and intimate relationship. Think about how many people in your life to whom you can, you can say my, that they are my something. And I'm not talking about somebody uh, who serves a certain role like, oh, he is my accountant or he is my uh, doctor. I'm not talking about that. I mean, think about how many people that you can say their name after you use the word my and you describe to someone like that. If I were to um, introduce Andrew and start telling people, this is my Andrew. Some of you guys would say, I didn't know you guys were that close. You guys might be a little bit, you know, like, oh, that's, um, wow, that's. A little bit too much. And there's a good chance if I started introducing Andrew as, this is my Andrew. Good chance Miran will jump in and she'll say, no, this is my Andrew. <laughs> right? You don't use my unless you have a relationship with that person that is very close. And you have this tremendous confidence in that relationship. So David begins this psalm with this startling confession of this deep relationship. You, God, are my God. And then he says, 
earnestly I will seek you. So it is then understood when he says, earnestly I will seek you. He's not saying, I'm going to try to find you. I am searching for you, God. He's not saying, you are out there, I am searching for you. Earnestly, I'm seeking you. He's not saying that. He's saying, because you, God, are my God, therefore, I will earnestly seek you. Because the Bible never says that finding God is the result of seeking him. Instead, it says seeking God is the result of finding him. Right? Think about this very, very simply. When you walk into a room of strangers and you know that your wife or your children or somebody that you know that's close to you is there. What do you do as you walk into that crowd? What do you do? You seek for that person because you know in that person you find your comfort. In that person, for some reason, you may even find your identity. In that person, you feel your orientation. You seek because you have been found. Your appetite is brought up because you have been found by God. You don't start seeking God until he has actually met you. What does this mean? Now, the Bible says... That although people have spiritual hunger in general, it can never overcome. Although everyone in the world, every created being has spiritual hunger in general, you cannot. It can never overcome the part of us where we're trying to run from God. Right? You can hear this sometimes if you listen to people say this. They will talk about something, and sometimes I'll watch the news, or I will watch somebody say something that's completely not meant to be like a Christian testimony or anything, but you can hear their spiritual hunger. You can can hear their longing. I'll sit down with some people who are not Christian, and, and you could hear in their voice a spiritual hunger, and you might even identify it as as that, and it'll show itself somewhere in some place. But the Bible also says because of sin, although people want God in general, although people want spiritual life in general, people just do whatever they can to run from the real God when he is revealed in the particular in Jesus Christ. Right? You guys have experienced this? Have you guys guys ever had an honest and open conversation with people about God outside of the church? And they'll say all these things about God in general. They say, oh yeah, you know, I believe in God in, in general. I believe in spiritual life. I believe we're spiritual beings. But somehow, when it becomes concrete, when it becomes, you start to be, be, talk about the revealed God in the Bible, when you start to talk about Christ, they can't accept anything about the real God. Because all these walls come up. And all these... Walls come up in ways that you just know that they have defenses that says, I want God in general, I want spiritual life in general, but this spiritual life in the particular in which there is actual direction and guidance and might even be some sort of obedience involved, I don't want that. A God that actually has an opinion about life, I don't want that. When David says... Earnestly, I seek you, he is saying, one of the signs that you have met the real God is that you are hungry and you are thirsty. The way you know that you have really met God, one way of saying this is then is that the way you know that you really met the real God is because you're really hungry and thirsty. And the other side of that would be if you 
only sort of met the real God, then you're only sort of hungry and sort of thirsty. But when you have met the real God, there, there is this deep passion, there's this deep hunger for him. What does this mean? Um, that means your hunger reveals something about your spiritual life as well. That means having that hunger, knowing that hunger, experiencing that hunger is actually a good thing. It can actually be a sign. The, uh, I was reading something that said it like this. It said, the sense of his absence, that ache because of his absence, is evidence that he has touched you. In other words, the sense of his absence and the longing for his absence for it to be gone is the sense of his presence. If he's not present, if you have never experienced him in your life, then you don't long for him. This is why David says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you as in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I feel that sort of thirst when you are not with me, God. It's beautiful, but it's also heart-wrenching. He's talking about thirst. He's saying he's thirsty. He's so thirsty as if he's in a dry land in the middle of a desert. That's how he thirsts for God. It's beautiful. It's heart-wrenching. It's both. It's interesting. In my experience with people, the deeper that sense of absence, the deeper that, that sense of longing, that hunger, that thirst is, the greater is his presence in their life. People whom I know to have the strongest of faiths are the ones that struggle the most with God being absent in their life. Who are most sensitive to God being distant in their life. A few years ago, uh, some of you guys may remember Mother Teresa's uh, personal letters after her death were published in a book. And some people thought it was scandalous. Because in these letters were letters in which Mother Teresa talked about how God felt so distant to her at times. How she felt his absence so much in her life. That is not a sign of somebody who doesn't know God. That is not a sign uh, of someone who has never experienced God. That is a sign of someone who yearns for God because they have experienced God and they know God deeply. And that is their God. You are my God. People who have only nominalist faith are the ones that are the most oblivious to this longing then, right? They'll complain when all, all of the, um, the side dishes of faith um, not that this, the side dishes are not important, but they'll, they'll complain when all the side dishes to faith, like community, a certain sense of grounding, a certain sense of purpose in their lives, 
when those things are lacking, people will complain. But the ones that are the most nominalist about your faith will be the ones who will never complain about how distant God is. Right? Listen, um, when we first begin to seek God, your first steps to God almost always is because we want something in life because we think he'll be loving enough to give it, to give it to us. Okay? When we first begin to seek God, it will be for those side dishes or for the benefits of God. Someone we love is sick. We need a meaning in life. Uh, we are lonely. We are searching for something in life, right? That is perfectly okay. But that is not yet a sign that you have found him. Because that is not yet the mark of the authentic Christian experience, authentic spiritual experience of meeting God that David is talking about here, that David is uh, pointing out here. In the beginning, we go seeking after God. We go, um, we go to God seeking things that we want in life, like Dorothy um, seeking the Wizard of Oz in order to get things that we, will, we think will complete us. So maybe you might think, we say, so maybe you'll say, I'm so lonely. Maybe if I get to know God, then I'll have peace. Uh, or maybe he'll answer my prayers, and I'm hoping that he's loving enough to give me the life that I want. And that's how we all begin a pursuit after God. But when you find him, a change happens. Or better said, more precisely said, when he finds you, a change happens. Even David, I'm sure he started off probably by saying something like, God, if you love me, then don't let my enemies defeat me. If you love me, don't let my son die. If you love me, help me win this battle. If you love me, protect me from Saul. I am sure that David probably started off that way as well. In the beginning, there's a good chance that he was saying, if you love me, give me a good life. But when he actually experiences God, he began to realize in verse 3, it says this. It says, your love is better than life. When he experienced God, he said, if I have your love, I don't need anything else in life. If I have your love, if I have you, that is life. Jonathan Edwards said it like this one time. He says, the mark of authentic spiritual experience is that you become satisfied with, with God for who he is and not just for the benefits he gives you. And that's exactly what David is saying here. I realized that if I had an experience with God, I didn't want anything else. If I had God's love, if I had God's glory, if I had God's honor, if I had God's wisdom, that's what I long for, God himself. To begin, he begins to experience God and rest in God for who he is and not for anything else. Not even for the benefits. Not for anything that God can give him in one sense. And to one degree or another, all of us who have experienced God, you know what this is. All of us who have ever experienced God, even to one degree or another, if you're sitting here 
and you, it, it, something in this resonates with you, and you get, you get this. Maybe you have been confused a little bit about seeking after some of the benefits, but you get that the benefits are not what the life is about, but rather God himself. You get that, and you go, I, I can identify with that. It resonates with me. And we need to clear that up. We need to clear that up. How then? That's the big picture. Then how then can we clear that up? How then can we um, get to that big picture? How then can we um, find our lives oriented toward that big picture? How then can we be inspired by that big picture to move toward it? What are the steps? What can we do? So that the distractions sometimes and the way in which we sometimes fail to long for God himself, but, but we, we stop short and find our um, comfort in his benefits only. How then can we get there? There are four things I want to talk about really quickly. What are the disciplines that help us to seek God? What are the step-by-step instructions? First thing I want to say is uh, something I've said a while back. So first, I have to make sure that I don't ruin my appetite. That'll be the first thing. If God brings out your appetite, then the first thing you have to do is make sure that you don't ruin your appetite. If you're a parent of kids, um, you know this, you're living this, but if, you're a, if you've ever been a child, and most of us have been at one time, you'll remember this. But often, my kids nowadays, especially nowadays, they're just at that perfect age in which they almost always want a snack or they always, almost always want a cookie or a candy like 30 minutes before we eat dinner. Right? You guys remember doing this? And what do I always have to do? What do I always have to say? He's like, no, we're eating in 30 minutes. You will ruin your appetite. What, what does that mean? Uh, because, the, you know, they don't get it at first. They, they think, what do you mean ruin my appetite? No, I'll still be hungry. I'll still want the other stuff too if the dinner is good. Well, when we eat candy, when we eat cookies, you don't feel as hungry. You filled yourself up with things that give you a little bit of a sugar high, and all of a sudden, that, that sense, the true sense of hunger for the right things is, is satiated a little bit temporarily. It's hollow. It's not healthy. It's not a good thing. But you don't eat. You don't eat as much. Stuff on the table is what you need, what you really, really need, but you find yourself with a ruined appetite. Very much the same thing for the rest of us in terms of our spiritual appetites. I read this written by a professor friend of mine after he taught an undergrad class called Life Worth Living. He writes these two observations that he made. It makes about our culture and society. He says, The prevalent way in which we think of human well-being is fulfillment of desires. This is how broad swaths of culture understand well-being. And this is how scholars who study the importance of money and power and sex in human life understand well-being. Fulfillment of desires. But also, number two, his observation. Addiction is rampant in our culture and is arguably the most serious epidemic our societies are facing. And I don't mean just addiction to alcohol and illegal drugs and gambling. I mean, above all, addiction to food and sex, porn, to power, 
and money, both the money itself and the things money can buy. And he says this, he says, when you put these two observations together, you have my startling discovery, which is we think of well-being as fulfillment of desires, but the way we seek to fulfill desires is often the very thing that destroys us. Our striving is self-contradictory. The road so many of us think lead to salvation ends, in fact, in perdition. This is the nature of sin. This is the nature of sin. We understand that we have hunger. The sin doesn't mask over the fact that we, have, we feel hungry. But the sin distorts our hunger and our appetite so that we begin to seek it in other things. That will give us that hollow, temporary high. That will give us that hollow and temporary sense of fulfillment, but in fact leads to greater and greater unhealth and greater and greater disease, disease of our hearts. Some of you, the reason you're not hungry for God enough is because you are ruining your appetite. You're doing things that gives you a certain kind of illusory, temporary high. But if you would just for a moment obey him, if you would repent and let go of that distorted desire, distorted addiction as sin, then we may have clarity enough to realize it is not that I need. It is not power I need or money I need or things I need or sex I need but rather God that I need you're filling your life with God's substitutes and sometimes these God substitutes might be sin but the other one that I want to say to you right now is some of you Are ruining your appetite for God by having a God substitute of another person, of people. Some of you, someone that you might be in love with, someone that you really love and admire. That person is ruining your appetite for God because whenever you have a problem, you sit down. And if that person says you're okay and you seek their approval, then you think you're okay. You are ruining your appetite for God. Second. Second instruction, second step that we need to think about. If you want to develop your appetite for God, then we need to begin to appreciate all of his attributes. We need to begin to appreciate the full range of who God is, not just the parts that we, have a, we, we are comfortable with or we like. Don't just look at his power and his grace because it benefits you. Look at his hope. Look at his holiness. Look at his sovereignty. Look at his justice. Look at his splendor. Some of us are very picky about the kind of Bible studies that we do. And I I hear people say this. um, I don't think we're aware of what we're saying when we say things like this. It's that, oh, you know, I don't like that sort of uh, passage. I don't really want to study that because I'm not really into that. 
uh, and we're talking about the Bible. And, and throughout my experience, people, all of us, have said that in one way or another. And said, oh, I'm not comfortable with God being like that when I read those stories. So I don't really want to do that study. Um, I want to just focus on God being graceful. I, I like just focus, focusing on, on Jesus as he's presented in the New Testament. Do you realize how self-centered that sounds? <laughs> Do you realize what you're saying about God? All of us have this. All of us, including the pastors. Including the pastors. The, I think the, dif- the difference might be that the pastors um, over the years have learned to discipline ourselves a little bit better so that we're not just picking and choosing. But we could easily fall into a tendency to focus on certain passages, right? Certain things that we're comfortable with. Um, I have lots of notes, and some of you guys know this about me, that I have lots of notes, and I write out my sermons quite a bit. Um, but I didn't always start out this way. About, for about the first five years that I was um, doing preaching ministry, uh, I did outlines. I did very sparse outlines. It gave me a lot of freedom. It gave me a lot of sense of feeling like, oh, I could be a lot more uh, con- uh, ex- extemporaneous and... Uh, Got that word in there. Okay, check mark. Uh, it got me the ability to kind of, you know, uh, interact a little bit more. But I also noticed a pattern when I was doing that. I was focusing on certain aspects of the Christian life. It, it, what I'm saying is I was focusing on certain aspects of who God is. The God that I was comfortable with. The God that I wasn't comfortable with, I might mention him. Certainly I would not, um, I wouldn't just do that part, just gloss over it, but I could not, I could not go into that in any depth. I could not go into those sections in any depth because I was just not comfortable with it. I did not struggle with it enough. When I work this out like this, it forces me to struggle with what I think about God a little bit more. Some of you guys might even notice, I think, there's a good chance that Sam has noticed, and wow, that's kind of a different, this is not the typical sort of a message that Jin likes to, you know, in his uh, wheelhouse. Uh, we talk like that with each other sometimes. And, and it's true, because, but I struggled with this passage because this wasn't easy for me. Think about every aspect of God. Do anything possible Think about the full range. Don't shy away from the difficult passages in the Bible. Even those that don't come easily to you. Especially those passages that might not come easily to you. Don't throw those passages away. Don't throw those aspects of God, attributes of God away. Because justice is hard for you to deal with when you think about that. Or maybe grace is hard for you to deal with. Or truth is hard to deal with. His truthfulness and his faithfulness is is hard for you to deal with. But focus on those things that are hard for you as well sometimes so that you can give God, you can begin to fall in love with the entire attributes, the fullness of who God is. And I guarantee you, when you struggle with that, you will fall in love with a truer God and you will fall in love with God even more so than you have you could ever have just by focusing on the parts that you're comfortable with. The third thing, 
And what he kind of said it. Begin to pray. Begin to develop a prayer life. Begin to develop a way of praying so that you pray for who he is and not only what you want from him. In fact, give yourself a break of doing prayer petitions for about a month. Just focus on who God is instead of saying, God, give me this. God, give this to me. God, help this person. And, and instead of focusing on all the things that you might want to focus on, and I'm not saying that those p- petitions are bad things. Of course it's not. We're called to pray for other people. We're called to pray for things of God to happen on this earth. We're called to ask God for help in our lives, for sure. But the first thing I think we need to get into a habit of doing is to let go of the gimmies and to focus on the attributes of falling in love with God for who he is once again. God, help me to remember who you are. God, forgive me when I forget you for being like this. Forgive me when I forget that you are a God of justice. Forgive me when I forget that you are a God of grace. If you do that, I think it begins to lead to real experiences of God. And the last thing. Comfort yourself with this. If praying about who God is still leads you to be hungry, remember that your hatred of the hunger is a sign of God's presence. Take comfort in that, that whenever you remember that you're hungry with God, it is because God has sought me. That the very absence of God that you might feel so uh, harshly in your life at times is in fact a sign of his presence. For me in my life, the times in which I felt that God wasn't near me, when I searched after God and I thought, God, you are so far away from me right now, in those moments when I thought, when I realized that I, my hunger was in fact a sign of God's presence in my life, I began to rejoice in that. And that became a bridge for me, for the breakthrough, in which I'm, immediately I began, began to experience God's nearness once again. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think many of you guys have experienced times like that as well. That when you have searched out God in those times of desperation, and when you have said, God, I hunger for you, and I don't feel like you're here that when you realize that your hunger is in fact a good thing that reveals to you your true need for who God is, God himself is, and that this is a God that you can call my God, then I think, then I think we can snap out of whatever ails us and whatever distance that we feel instantly disappears and begin to experience God once again. Your appetite for God is awakened because God has found you.
May you learn to develop that appetite. May your hunger grow for God. May you thirst and feel a thirst that you have never felt before. A painful, dreadful thirst. Because you long for God's presence that much in your life. Let's pray. God, we fall into your presence. And we ask that you would truly um, help us to see, help us to declare to you, God, you are my God. And earnestly I will seek you. And your love is indeed better than life. Jesus, we pray. Amen.